Welcome to the Get in the Fight podcast. My name is Nate Whitson, and I'm the founder of Get in the Fight Ministries and our exclusive online fight club for Christian men. Everything we do here is dedicated to helping Christian men become the men that God meant for them to be. So if you're looking for helpful content and conversations that can help you to grow and become the man that God made you to be, then you're in the right place. But before we get started, please do me a huge favor and be sure to subscribe, click the like button, and then leave us a five-star review. Doing that helps us to reach more men who are looking for content just like this. Also, if you'd like to learn more about our mission and how to get involved or how to join the Fight Club, then head on over to getinthefight.club. That's getinthefight.club and learn more today. But without further ado, it's time to get in the fight. So let's go. Hey, what's up, guys? My name is Nate Whitson, and this is the Get in the Fight podcast. I'm glad that you're here. If you're new to us, then welcome. We are primarily talking to Christian men, and if you're not a Christian man, that's okay. I really think that some of the things that you will hear, not only today, but throughout our conversations, can be helpful to you to live a better life, to live a bigger life. But everything that we do is within the context of our relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit working in our lives to make us not just better versions of the old self, but really to make us new, to make us more like him. And so we're on that journey. And if you're on that journey, we just want to welcome you to the Get in the Fight podcast. If you want to learn more about what we do in our exclusive and private fight club for Christian men, then head over to our website at getinthefight.club. You can learn more about that today. But we're going to continue a conversation of podcasts on leadership. And we started last week with the introduction of this book called The Wisdom of the Bullfrog by Admiral William H. McRaven. And I just, I feel like it's so helpful to go through what great leaders do, and in particular, what great leaders think and what they've learned. And one of the things that I've um, thought over many years is that, number one, who you hang around with matters. And so although I don't have the privilege of speaking to Admiral McRaven, I would love to, if you're listening to this by some strange, weird reason, Admiral, I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to meet with you someday. But since I don't likely have that opportunity, the next best thing I can do is to hang out with these guys by reading what they write. And so that's what I try to do. I try to read a wide range of things. I really try hard to just saturate my life in reading around scriptures first but then supplement that with everybody else, right? And so one of those things that I love to study and read and try to grow in is leadership tactics and principles and ideas. And who better than a guy who got the title of Bullfrog? So the Bullfrog was the longest tenured Navy SEAL that was still working, and Admiral McRaven took that title. And so that's what this is about. It's um, the wisdom from years in service, to our country and things that he's learned. And so there are 18 chapters in this new book. And so we're going to break those down and and cover six chapters at a time over the next three episodes. And so today we're going to go through chapters one through six. I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, to maybe pull out a pen and paper. My guess is that some of these chapters will speak to you more than others, but I guarantee there's going to be some things here today and then in the upcoming podcast episodes as well in 25 and 26 that you're going to want to really take your time and learn more about. So let's jump right into that and cover the first six chapters of the wisdom of the bullfrog. And so going to the book here, 
Admiral McRaven starts off chapter one, which is titled Death Before Dishonor. And he says this, I had chosen those last words carefully because earlier in the day, I had passed by the cadet honor code, which is etched in stone on a wall that adorns the academy grounds. The code is simple, but incredibly powerful. It says, a cadet will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. Below the honor code is the mission of the United States Military Academy. The mission of West Point is not to produce patentesque geniuses, four-star generals, or presidents of the United States. The mission is to produce, quote-unquote, leaders of character. And the honor code provides the foundation of that character. The code beckons young men and women who aspire to live above the common level of life. To live above the common level of life. What does that mean? It means to be noble when others may be unprincipled. To be honorable when others may be shameless. To be men and women of integrity when others may resort to dishonesty. What I found in leading and being led by great officers from all branches of service was the importance of character and having a personal code of honor to help guide you through the difficult times. It's easy when we see generals fall, when their foibles are made public and their failures of character are laid bare. It's easy to believe that the code is nothing but hollow words to inspire impressionable young men and women. It's easy to get jaded by the ugliness of life and to become cynical when those we held up as heroes stumble. But make no mistake about it. If you want to be a great leader, you must have a personal code of conduct that provides an anchor for your decisions and your actions, an anchor that tethers you to a good place of return when you go astray. And most of us will go astray at some point. We are all human. We make poor decisions. We act stupidly. We have regrets. But nevertheless, we should all strive and strive mightily to be honorable. It's in a pretty amazing way to start this conversation for us because honor is one of the four principles of our ministry. And so we have, as you go back through, and again, you can listen to more of the backdrop of getting the fight ministries and, and why I started it and where that comes from. But one of the things you'll see in episodes one through four of the Get in the Fight podcast is my journey to figuring out my own personal honor code, in essence. I didn't call it that. I call them the four principles of Get in the Fight. But what really struck me early on was the need for exactly what Admiral McRaven's talking about here, having a personal code of conduct, having a personal standard by which you can measure your ability to become better, to live a better and bigger life, which is really, again, this mission that we are adhering to in this ministry. In essence, we're saying we want to be like Jesus, but what does that look like in practical ways? Having a personal code of honor then, or a personal code of conduct, or having the four principles of getting the fight gives us this daily reminder, this download that's portable, that we can take with us, that can help us to become more of that man that we really truly want to be. And I love that he says, you know, that it's important for every man and woman to have, regardless if you think of yourself as a great leader or not, if you're a man, if you're a dad, if you're a husband, you will benefit greatly by having a personal code of conduct. In fact, we look at scriptures and we use 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14 as really kind of like that guiding a scriptural base for our ministry. And in that, we pray this every day, that God would help us to be alert. This is what the verse says, be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, 
be strong, do everything in love. In that scripture verse, we anchor our four principles around those ideas because we know that when you go astray, it's because life happens. It's because there's sin in our lives. And so because we know we're human, we need something that kind of, you know, refocuses our attention when we go off course. And having these four principles and having a personal honor code, I think is key to success. I love that Admiral McRaven says to us in this, that we should all strive and strive mightily to be honorable. Honorable is, again, it's just kind of this old-fashioned word, but it's one that we chose in our ministry as well, because honor means to merit respect. It's like you've earned it. And for many of us, we think, gosh, I would love to be somebody who has earned the respect of others. I would love to have earned the respect of God, that he would look down and see that I was a man, like he says of David, a man after God's own heart. That was a guy that that the Lord honored. He had earned that respect because of his life. In fact, we'd read through Job recently in our uh, devotion time together as a fight club, and we saw that the same thing was there. The Lord looked down when he was speaking to the devil and said, have you considered my servant Job? And so having enough moral character and fortitude to be worthy of honor is a big deal. And Admiral McRaven tells us that if you want to be a great leader, then you need to strive mightily to be a man of honor. And we agree. Going back to the book, he says this, I often hear that it's hard to know the right thing to do. No, it's not. You always know what's right, but sometimes it's just very hard to do it. It's hard because you may have to admit failure. It's hard because the right decision may affect your friends and colleagues. It's hard because you may not personally benefit from doing what's right. Yeah, it's hard. That's called leadership. Having a set of moral principles and being a person of integrity are the most important virtues for any leader. In the simplest terms, it follows the West Point Honor Code. Don't lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those that do. This means be honest with your workforce, your customers, and the public. Be fair in your business dealings. Follow the golden rule. Treat others as you would have them treat you. If this sounds a bit Pollyannish or like you're in Sunday school, well, so be it. Being a person of high integrity is what separates the great leaders from the commonplace. (laughs) I love that he says this. You want to be a great leader? We often think that it's hard to know the answers. And he says, no, it's not. It's just that it's hard to do what's right. And I think that's so true. If you want to be a great leader, you have to know that it's not going to be easy. It never is. But it's also not that complicated. Moving on to chapter two, he titled this one, You Can't Surge Trust. And so I asked this question here. Can you be trusted? Are you a person that's worthy of trust, a trustworthy person. Going back to the book here, in his book, The Speed of Trust, Stephen Covey says, there are two components to trust, character and competence. You may initially trust someone if you know them to be a man or woman of sound character, but if that person fails to deliver on their promises, if they're shown to be incompetent in handling the affairs of the business, then after a while, you lose trust in them. As a leader, you're Competence can and will be measured in your personal behavior, your professional demeanor, and your effectiveness in handling problems and your consistency. To be a great leader, 
you must be trusted by your employees. If they do not trust you, they will not follow you. It takes time to build trust, but it's time well spent if you intend to lead effectively. He says here there's two components, character and competence. And we really kind of in the first chapter there talked a little bit about that, right? We talked about the idea that to be a man of honor is to be a man of integrity, a man that keeps his commitments and how important that is. So that's kind of the the component of character there. But the competence part about being a leader is important too. And he talks about like, if you want to be trusted, and I think that's an important element here, that trust is what we need to have when it comes to people following us, whether that is, you know, he talks about employees, but I just put in the sidelines there. Well, if you want to be a great leader, you must be trusted by your wife. You must be trusted by your kids. You must be trusted by your team. You must be trusted by, you know, whoever's behind you or beside you. And so a lot of times we know we are, we're really envious or, or trying hard to get to a seat at the table to be a leader of an organization or a leader of a team or uh, a leader of, of something at work, right? But what we fail to recognize is that when you get in that position of leadership, the thing that you really need the most in order to be the most effective is trust. And trust is built when you have great character and great competence. You can't skip either one of those. Moving on to chapter three, it's called Win in Command, Command. So there's a story that he tells in this book about a guy named Admiral Chester Nimitz. And the story takes place seven months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And the U.S. Navy had to defend a little island out in the middle of the Pacific called the Midway Island. It was a strategic island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And the Japanese knew, and we knew, that if the island was controlled by either party, it would probably mean that control of the Pacific would be won by either country. So we knew as a country that Midway Island was critical to us. In fact, many of the advisors at the time really truly believed that if we lost the island to the Japanese, that the war would probably be won by the enemy. So in in that backdrop anyways is Admiral Chester Nimitz, who was in charge and had to make a tough leadership decision about what to do there. And so with that in the backdrop, I go back to the book here in chapter three, talking about winning command, command. And this is what he says. Nimitz reviewed the intelligence. He consulted with his staff and he talked with his commanders, but the ultimate decision was his alone. He anguished over the decision for days. What would happen if he were wrong? Thousands of sailors might die. Thousands more would perish in fighting on Midway in the island chains that were leading to Japan. The fate of the entire Navy and perhaps our nation rested on this decision. Legend has it that during a conversation with Admiral Bull Halsey, Nimitz confessed his apprehension. The weight of the decision about Midway was overwhelming him. Halsey, blunt as ever, reminded the Admiral of Nimitz's own personal conviction. You once told me, Halsey began, that when in command, command. It was the clarion call that Nimitz needed. 
he understood that the commanders are expected to make the tough decision, to act with purpose, to be confident, and to lead from the front, to accept a challenge and steel yourself for the rough waters ahead. A commander must command. Command the situation, command the troops, command your fears, take command. You know, being a leader puts you in some tough decisions. You have to, though, recognize that when you're in command, when you're in charge, when you're leading something, you must act with purpose, but also with confidence and lead from the front. In fact, what he says here is that when you're in command, command, act like a man, be strong, <laughs> do everything in love. And that's what we see in First Corinthians 16. And so when we look at this, I just think for myself, and I think you should ask yourself, so when I'm in charge, I need to be in charge. I need to lead, and I need to do it well. So the question really is, where are you in command today? Maybe for a lot of you, it's as a husband. And again, I don't mean that in some kind of old-fashioned, I'm in charge, I'm the man, and you'll do everything I say. Of course, that's not what we mean. It's not what we see from Christ. It's not what we see from most believers either. But you are head of your household. You are in charge of your home. You are responsible, ultimately for the spiritual leadership and direction of your home. So as a husband and as a father in your home, you are in command of some sort. Maybe you have a role at work or maybe in your church, or maybe you're a coach or a pastor, whatever it is. But whatever it is, wherever it is, when you are in command, what Admiral Nimitz is telling you is that you need to command. He goes on to say this, that being a leader, whether... If you're the CEO, the admiral, the general, the chairperson, or the director for an office of two, it's difficult. As a leader, you must always appear to be in command. Even on those days when you struggle with the pressures of your job, you must be confident. You must be decisive. You must smile. You must laugh. You must engage with your employees and be thankful for their work. You must have the look of a person in charge. You must instill in your men and women a sense of pride that their leader can handle any problem. As a leader, you can't have a bad day. You must never look beaten, no matter the circumstance. If you sulk, if you hang your head, if you whine or complain about the leaders above you or the followers below you, then you will lose the respect of your men and women, and the attitude of despair will spread like wildfire. So what does he tell us that to do then? If you're in command, you need to be confident. You need to be decisive. And you need to be passionate about the work that you do and show people around you that you care, that you care about leading, but you also care about them. And if you do that, you will be a better leader. Moving on to chapter four, he titled it, and I love this chapter, We All Have Our Frog Floats. So there's a hilarious story. And again, this is just one more time where I'm, I'm just reading bits and pieces of this. And I just highly encourage you to get the book and to read these stories. They are just truly incredible. But I love this story because he gives this picture where he's a young ensign in the military. He's he's working his way up the ranks. He's doing everything he can to impress his bosses and his leaders. And he gets a message that he's wanted to be seen in the commander's office. And so he is like, you know, his brain's kind of going crazy. And he's explaining that he's thinking, oh my gosh, like this might be my big break. I think people have like finally noticed that I'm a good leader. And, and he starts to wonder, like, maybe they're going to put me on some kind of top secret mission. Maybe they've, they've got something really special that they know that only I can do. And so 
he is thinking, gosh, this is so crazy, but it's also so great. I can't wait to see what big mission, what special task they have for me. And so with that as, as a backdrop, I want to go to the book and just kind of finish the story because now he comes into the office and it says that sitting behind the desk was Commander Bill Salisbury, the skipper of Underwater Demolition Team 11, a highly decorated Vietnam SEAL. He had welcomed me to the team a few weeks earlier with a warm smile and a strong handshake. I liked the guy, even though we hadn't spent much time together. I came to attention and announced, Sir, Ensign McRaven reporting as requested. Salisbury smiled. My junior officer enthusiasm was maybe a bit too much. Relax, Mr. McRaven. Yes, sir, I said, coming to parade rest. The XO tells me you've hit the ground running. Thank you, sir. You're making a good impression on the wardroom in the chief's locker. I nodded and swelled with pride. The Commodore told me earlier today that you were the best ensign. I swelled even larger, if that was possible. He's got something he wants you to do, and if that's important to the Commodore, then it's important. Yes, sir, I said too loudly. Here it comes, I thought. A mission. This is why I went through SEAL training. Maybe someday I'll find myself in one of those pictures out front. Salisbury paused for effect. Every year, the city of Coronado holds a 4th of July parade. We haven't participated in a long while, he said. Okay, I'm confused, Admiral McRaven is thinking. Must be something I'm missing here. He carried on. So, this year, the Commodore wants to have a frog float, and I need you to take charge of building the float. Then he smiled. Frog float, I asked. Yeah, you know, a big green Freddy the Frog puffing on a cigar, maybe carrying a stick of dynamite. The folks in Coronado will love it. Yes, sir, I responded with a lot less enthusiasm. Well, check with the supply officer. He can get you all the material you need for the float. That's all, Mr. McRaven. Thanks very much. As I stood there a bit stunned, Salisbury went back to reading his daily message traffic. I slowly turned around and walked out of the office. As I passed the action pictures on the wall, I somehow doubted that my frog float would ever make the cut. Frustrated, I headed to the locker room to change clothes and get back to work. As I sat on the bench muttering profanities under my breath, I heard a deep, raspy voice from the locker behind me. What's the matter, Ensign? I turned around to see Master Chief Herschel Davis, the senior enlisted man from our sister team, UDT-12. Davis was the personification of a frogman. Tall, lean, tan, with a ruddy face, steel gray eyes, and a huge handlebar mustache. He had seen more combat action than any ten men I knew. Nothing important, Master Chief. Uh-huh, he said in a fatherly tone as he took a seat beside me. Why did I feel like I was all of a sudden in the confessional? I confessed. Skipper just called me into his office and told me he wants me to take charge of building... I paused. Building the frog float for the 4th of July parade. Hmm, the Master Chief grunted. And my guess is you would rather be out jumping out of airplanes, locking out of a submarine, or going on a mission to save the world. Exactly right. Again, too loud, I said. Let me tell you something, Ensign. I've been in this canoe club for almost 30 years. Sooner or later... We all have to do things that we don't want to do. But if you're going to do it, then do it right. Build the best damn frog float that you can. And there it was. Build the best damn frog float that you can. Throughout the rest of my career, I would be asked to build a lot of quote-unquote frog floats. I was asked to do those menial tasks that no one else wanted. Those tasks that seemed beneath the dignity of my rank. 
But each time I remembered the words of the master chief and tried to do the best that I could to be proud of whatever job I was given. I found in my career that if you took pride in the little jobs, people would think you worthy of the bigger jobs. I read most of that story there because it's just so applicable and so good. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you thought, gosh, why am I being asked to do this stupid task? Why am I the one that is being asked to do this job that's below me? I mean, don't they know how good I am? Don't they know how long I've been here at this job? Don't they know my title or position or any of those things, right? We all get asked to do jobs that are menial. We all get put in positions where we see the need to fill in the gaps and we're not going to be recognized for it. It's not going to be uh, one of those sexy jobs where everybody just claps and says how awesome you are. In fact, we learn a lot more about how we handle the idea of having to build a frog float than we do by getting called up to do the special big task that, you know, uh, Admiral McRaven was thinking he was getting called to do. We all have to face those things. And so being a leader sometimes means this. Number one, do the job without complaining. Number two, be humble. Just because you have a title or just because you have been there a long time doesn't mean that a task is below you. If you get asked to do something or you see the need of doing something, be humble and do the job. And I love I love the attitude that they learn here in the military, or at least have the opportunity to learn here, that if you're going to do it, if you get tasked with it, if you get asked to lead, then do the very best. Make it the very best that you can. Do your best. And I can tell you that for me, I, I can tend to get salty or, you know, sad and whine and complain and woe is me, and then do a, just a terrible job because I think the job isn't deserving of my best. Well, the scriptures tell us that we should do all things as unto the Lord, which should mean that whatever we do, whether that's a podcast or leading a men's ministry or leading at home or doing what you're asked at work or playing your role on a team or whatever it is, whatever you are asked to do, do the very best that you can do. I love that leadership lesson from there. Moving on to chapter five, he titled this one, The Only Easy Day Was Yesterday. This is a the saying from the Navy SEALs. This is kind of their motto or their mantra, that the only easy day was yesterday. Going into the book here on chapter five, he says this, In 2002, when I was serving in the Bush White House, the commander of the East Coast SEALs invited me in for a conference. As was typical of a SEAL gathering, we started each day with an hour of calisthenics, followed by a long run. Having survived a serious parachute accident in 2001, my body had still not healed, and trying to do any physical training was challenging at best. But I thought of Chuck Lemoyne, and I knew he wouldn't quit just because of a little discomfort. So I manned up and joined the group for morning PT. We started with the usual series of push-ups, sit-ups, eight-count bodybuilders, and flutter kicks. I could barely manage any of the exercises, but tried to tough it out. Upon completion of the calisthenics, we began a 10-mile run. All of my fellow SEALs started off in a sprint. I was only able to keep up for the first 100 yards and then began to fall back. Within a few minutes, I couldn't even see the pack anymore. The course was five laps around a two-mile stretch of State Park. As the minutes passed and I lumbered along, the first runner, a young SEAL lieutenant, began to lap me. 
Slowing momentarily, he pulled up beside me and, knowing about my parachute accident, gave me a penetrating and confused look. Sir, what the heck are you doing? he asked. What do you mean? I responded. He shook his head and said, Sir, why are you even out here? You don't have anything left to prove. Before I could answer, he bolted away and he ran off into the distance. I was a Navy SEAL captain at the time. I had already completed my major command, an important milestone in an officer's career, and to this young lieutenant, I had nothing left to prove. But what I wanted to tell him, what I wanted to yell at the top of my voice, was how very wrong he was. The day you no longer believe that you have something to prove, the day you no longer believe you must give it your all, the day you think you're entitled to special treatment, the day that you think all your hard days are behind you, is the day that you're no longer the right leader for the job. Leadership requires stamina, energy. It requires resilience. It requires everything you have and then some. The men and women that work for you will feed off your energy. If you look unprepared to deal with the challenges of the day, they will see it. If you look beaten down because today was harder than yesterday, they will feel this. If you're not prepared to give it your all, they will know this too. And if you think this is just about leaders in combat, you're mistaken. This is about every great leader who was given a difficult task and asked to inspire, motivate, and manage the people under their charge. But it doesn't mean that every day has to exhaust you. Being a great leader doesn't mean that you have to have superhuman strength. It only means that you have to recognize that there will require effort every day. And some days, you just won't bring it. That's okay. That's normal. But then, bring it the next day or the next. You will only fail as a leader when you think that today is going to be easier than yesterday. I like that he says, the day that you think you no longer have something to prove, that you can just show up and coast, or that somehow you're entitled to special treatment, that's the day that you're no longer right to be the leader for that job. And I'm challenged by this. I'm really challenged by this because how many times do you go to work all day and then come home and think, now it's my time, right? Now it's my time to coast. Now it's my time to sit on the couch or sit in the chair or, you know, kick back or, or go do my own thing or disengage or whatever it is that you feel or whatever it is that you're tempted to do. He says that you've got to show up every day. Look, you just left work and you were doing your best work there. Guess what? You got to come home and do it again. The only easy day was yesterday. Every day is going to be a struggle potentially. Every day might be hard. Every day is going to require your best. As a husband, you've got to show up every day. As a father, you've got to show up every day. As a boss, you've got to show up every day. If you're the coach, you've got to show up every day. And if you're a church leader or if you're in any other position, you've got to show up every day. It's kind of like we talk about this with our kids a lot, but your job in whatever you do is to bring great attitude and great effort. And if you'll do that, you will stand out. But all of a sudden, if you start thinking that you're entitled to something, <laughs> then guess what? The only easy day you had was yesterday. Today's going to be tough. Suck it up. So be it. It is what it is. That's what leadership's about. And honestly, if we just showed up with great attitude and great effort, you're going to fall at times. That's not even the point. What he is saying is that the only easy day was yesterday. And if you get that mantra in your mind, if you understand that you're not entitled to anything, and yeah, it might be hard, what are you going to do? Like, What is your response then to the adversity? The only thing you can do is to say, I have something to prove every day. I've got to show up and bring it every single day. 
this is how we honor the Lord. This is how we, we act as men. This is how we become men of strength. This is how we become men of honor. We earn it. We merit respect because we outwork everybody. We do the best we can every single day. The only easy day that you'll have is yesterday. And today you got to bring it. And I love that mantra. The last chapter for today that we'll look at here is chapter six that he calls run to the sound of the guns. One more story here for you from chapter six. On July 2nd, a numerically superior force of Major General John B. Hood's division began to attack the main troops. Hood had ordered his soldiers to find the Union left, turn it, and capture Little Round Top. As the battle raged and the Confederate soldiers seemed poised to defeat the smaller 20th Maine, Chamberlain, from his position higher on the ridge, grabbed his rifle and moved forward to the regimental line. Wounded from a previous cannon shell, Chamberlain limped toward his men, aligned himself with the regimental flag, and yelled, Bayonet! Forward to the right! Executing a right-wheel maneuver, the soldiers of the 20th Maine fixed their bayonets and charged down the hill into the oncoming rebel force. The level of ferocity and courage displayed by the 20th Maine was so surprising that it forced the Confederates to retreat, saving Little Round Top and the left flank of the Union forces. History would later record that Chamberlain's leadership that day and the courage of the enlisted soldiers of the 20th Maine saved the Union forces at Gettysburg. And, had Meade been defeated at Gettysburg, it is possible the South would have won the Civil War. Imagine how different the world would be today if Chamberlain had not run to the sound of the guns. Unfortunately, not all leaders understand this concept of moving quickly to address the problem, of accepting responsibility and making themselves the face of the solution. Running to the sound of the guns means that you take your troubles head on. In this story from the Civil War, Chamberlain knew that they had to act immediately. They didn't have time to cower in fear they knew that it was of immediate importance that they protect this space. And so he ran to the sound of the guns and he did what he had to do and he addressed it quickly. And, and the lessons that we learn from that is that when things go wrong in your life, when problems show up and the guns or the troubles start to blast, what is your default response? What is my response? Do you run away? Or do you run to the trouble? Do you run to the sound of the guns? I think so many times we tend to run away from those things. We have trouble and as men we just kind of cower in fear or we just don't want to you know, cause any trouble. And so we just become passive and weak. We don't want um, to put ourselves in a vulnerable spot. We don't want to admit failure. And so we, we know that it's so risky to take on that and to admit fault sometimes, to accept blame sometimes, or to run into the trouble. It could cause grief. It could cause problems for us. And so it's risky in doing that. But here's what I think is more risky. Running away and not addressing it ultimately will make things so much worse. When you have conflict in your marriage, how many times do you have to avoid the problem for days and days and let it just be this uh, tension in the air, this awkwardness that happens between you and your wife before you just go address it or she is forced to because we didn't act like a man 
and all of a sudden it gets resolved quickly and then you move forward, but you let it stew because you didn't run to the sound of the trouble. You decided to run away or hide from it. I know there's been times where there's been trouble at work. And in fact, there's a situation currently where somebody called and said, you did not tell me enough information and I'm ticked off that you, you know, didn't help me understand, you know, the significance of this situation at work. Well, I could either say, well, you know, make excuses and complain about it and say, no, 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 you misunderstood. I told you all of that. Or I could go into it like I did with this guy and say, yeah, I screwed up. And I called him right away and said, how do we fix this? How can I do a better job next time? And just take it, you know, again, if there's times that you need to explain yourself, I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. But the idea was I ran to the trouble. I ran to the sound of the guns and it solved it and resolved that issue in a day rather than it turning into two. How about times when you've got to have a hard conversation with somebody and you're just dreading it? Do you know what's worse than having that hard conversation? having it stick in your head for how many days, how many weeks. It just takes over your life if you don't run to it. And so running to the sounds of the guns is really what men do. That's ultimately a way that you earn that honor that we talked about in the beginning. It's how you become a man of strength and discipline. It's, it's a way that you keep your joy in life because you don't allow these things to turn into longer trouble than they need to. You hear the trouble, and you run to it and you address it. And so what we look at here is we say, look, if you've screwed up badly, <laughs> if you have conflict or trouble, if you're having to do something difficult, take it on. Run to it. Don't be afraid of it. Be men of courage. Be brave. Don't hesitate, though, and don't delay. Because when we do, we suffer for it. And t- we tend to make other people around us suffer as well. So see the problem, address it, and learn to communicate through it. You know, we go back to 1 Corinthians as we wrap up today in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. When you hear trouble coming, when you hear the guns blazing and the trouble is in front of you, act like men, be strong, have courage, do everything in love. That is the encouragement from Scripture, and that's what it looks like to run to the sound of the guns. So in these first six chapters... We really see some really just incredible lessons here. We talk about honor. We talk about building trust. We talk about when you're in charge, lead. When you're in command, command. We talk about the idea that sometimes you just have to take on the menial tasks and whatever that task is, that you would do it with all that you've got, that you would give your best effort no matter um, how big or important that task is. There's nothing below you. We talk about leading well means understanding that The only easy day was yesterday, and I've got to show up with the same energy and effort in every area of my life. And yeah, that's going to be hard, but that's what leadership's about. And so if you want to be a better leader, you've got to show up every day with a great attitude and great effort. And when you've got troubles, take them on. Don't run away from them. Let your default be, I'm going to deal with this now. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to have that conversation. I'm going to do the hard right thing and be a man of discipline like we talk about and get in the fight. And if we'll do these things, then our leadership will grow and we will live better lives, bigger lives, more like Jesus every day. And that's the point. Hey guys, thanks so much for being here today and listening to the show. Please be sure to head over to the website at getinthefight.club 
And before you go, if you haven't already, please subscribe, click the like button, and leave us a positive five-star review. It makes a huge difference whenever you do. Have a great day. Go get in the fight.